Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, literary journalist Jane Sullivan talks to writer and broadcaster Ramona Caval about her new book, A Letter to Layla, where, inspired by Layla, her granddaughter, Ramona travels the globe and across time to ask difficult questions about our past and our future. A quick reminder, as this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there's been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. But now, here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to this event with Ramona and Jane. My name is Chris Gordon. I am the Programming Manager for Readings. It is a pleasure to have you all here. On behalf of Readings and on behalf of Text Publishing House, what a treat we have for you tonight. But before we get going, I want to pay my respects to the elders. At the moment, I'm speaking from the Kulin Nation, and I want to pay my respects to their elders in particular, past, present, and emerging. And I want us all to sort of take a moment to reflect that wherever we are in this very beautiful country of ours, that we're all living on land that's not been ceded. It's stolen land, and it's a privilege and such a pleasure to live with such beauty. So let me now introduce you to the evening. I think we're really lucky because if you're like me and you've been kind of book crazy your whole life, then you would be someone that's read or listened to these two speakers throughout your entire adult life. I'm thinking about my Saturday mornings with Jane Sullivan, that her column is one of the first columns I turn to on the age. I'm thinking about hearing Ramona's voice. When I lived overseas, my mum sent me segments of radio that would make me homesick to really pull at my heartstrings. And she sent me sections from Ramona's. This is way back before the internet, so that I could feel particularly homesick and come home to her. It did work, Ramona Caval. It did work. Your voice seemed to me to describe exactly how Australia was. There was a warmth and an intelligence and an ability to ask the right questions. And I guess that's what both Jane Sullivan and Ramona Caval do for us. Jane, of course, who's a reporter, a literary critic, Someone who has spent her life making sense of why people write and what it tells us about themselves and what it tells us about ours. To you, Jane, welcome to this Zoom event. It's such a treat to have you here. Thank you so much, Christine. I'm really, really thrilled to be here. If you see the occasional halo of light on my head. I'm not chosen by God. It's just the, the light coming through my blinds in the evening. So please excuse that. Um, I'm now going to introduce Ramona, who of course needs no introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. I first met Ramona many years ago when I was editing the long departed women's pages in the age. And Ramona contributed some excellent science themed articles. And at that time, she'd worked as a microbiologist and a geneticist and she was teaching at RMIT. And she invited me to give a talk to her class. And my impression then was of a generous, warm-hearted woman with a strong curiosity about the world and a piercingly sharp intellect. 
So we've, reco we've reconnected on and off over the years, and I've eagerly followed her stellar career as a much-beloved broadcaster in the ABC Radio National, talking about books and language and other things. And she's also been a gun interviewer at local and international book festivals, a print journalist, and an author of books on every subject from reading to her father to Jewish cookery. So we know her, don't we? It's a welcome, wise, and very distinctive voice, both on air and on the page. And I actually um, do remember talking about this wonderful book, A Letter to Layla. Um, this was some years ago. It must have been when Ramona was in quite early stages of working on it. And we were both had rooms at the Glenfern Writers Studio in St Kilda. And I remember Ramona, it sounded absolutely fascinating, but I must admit I was a bit puzzled. It sounded as if it was going to be about everything and anything. Well, in a sense, it is that huge and it is absolutely fascinating. Basically, it's about us human beings, where we come from and where we might be going. But I am going to get Ramona to tell you what the book is about. She's going to do a little reading for you that will introduce the subject. Ramona, well, please. Thank you, thank you, Jane, for that lovely introduction. When I was younger, I assumed that those in power who were older than me were also wiser, that I could entrust the ship of state to their steady hands. Now most of the middle-aged adults in charge are my junior and I'm no longer convinced that this is the case. The young people I speak with feel the same way. Sharing wisdom freely is the province of the grandmother, but when the world we invite our grandchildren to live in is poisoned and parched, and there's a struggle for food and space and security, the old wisdoms don't hold. Wise elders were useful when the world faced by the young was not much changed from that of their forebears. This was how it was for most of the time humans have been on the planet, not any longer. I look at my grandchildren, all aged under 15, and think of the uncertainty they will face. I think about which adults will pilot this almost 8 billion person juggernaut as it careers into tomorrow's unknown. When we give power to those who would steer us, they often disappoint. All too human, we say, shaking our heads. But what does it mean to be all too human? How did we arrive at this moment in history, holding the fate of life on earth in our clever hands with their handy opposable thumbs? And what to make of the intriguing possibilities of our evolving to become more than human? This book is the story of my investigations into our pre-human origins and my attempt to map our possible trajectories into the future. On a mountain ridge in the Republic of Georgia, I found myself whispering about the soul with a paleoarchaeologist who'd uncovered a group of 1.8 million year old skulls of an ancestor human species. In a steaming forest in North Carolina, I spoke with an ex expert on the way dogs moderated early Neanderthal human interactions, while her thoughts were preoccupied by the welfare of a domestic cat named Zelda. I explored the dark depths of a limestone cave in southern France, looking at Ice Age art, then spoke with the world's foremost expert on ancient cave painting about his fears for the future. I learned of a long-dead Soviet scientist and his efforts to create a human-chimp hybrid. 
I watched the leaders of a gathering of happy, clappy transhumanists in San Diego at a rally, looking at their followers and trying to get them to defeat death itself. I met robots in Berlin that will care for the frail elderly of the near future, if there are any, and considered what might happen to us when we succeed in making an artificial intelligence that will surpass our own. But I will begin at the beginning. If you start a story in the middle, I will stop you and beg you to go back. What happened first and then what? Great, thank you. That, that, doesn't that whet your appetite? Um, so here we are. Let's begin at the beginning, as you said. Um, what gave you the idea for the book in the first place? It's a bit of a long story, Jane, if you can bear a long story. Um, <laughs> I've got, I, I, you know, I, I was on the treadmill at the gym and I was listening to um, a podcast of um, In Our Time by, with Melvin Bragg, who's very annoying, actually. I don't know if you, you listen to him, but he has this group of very clever people and he tries to sort of get them to go through their paces and he seems to have a predetermined idea of what they should be asking, uh, talking about. And I, it always feels as if they're sort of harried sheep getting to the end. But this was a, a program about... Um, the, the core of the earth. And I found myself completely fascinated by the core of the earth. This story about, um, about you know, uh, what was going on in the centre of the earth and the fact that it was, you know, a, a solid core and it had a molten uh, outside around it. And, and the reason why we actually have life on earth at all is because we have this molten core and that means we've got a magnetic... Um, a field around us that stops all these um, um, radiations coming from the rest of the universe and which means that life could evolve on earth and it was just seemed so completely sort of haphazard and and lucky that we should be on this planet with this kind of core and so I thought that's a pretty amazing and then I thought how did these people who, from the um, 18th century in the, the 1790 or so, these guys, these natural historians, how did they figure out, for example, that there was a core like this at the centre? And, you know, what did they know and how did they know it? And I started to think about how human beings are kind of amazing and how they they use their brains to work out these things that you can't see or hear. You don't, you don't really have the instruments at that stage, but they noticed that, you know, when the miners went down into the earth, it got hotter and they noticed that, you know, volcanoes threw up all of this hot magma. So they figured it must be hot down there. All of these things made me think that's fascinating. And so I kind of came back and I started to research about the centre of the earth. And then I thought, you know, Fiction writers have been writing about the centre of the earth, a journey to the centre of the mm. earth, Jules Verne, and I read Jules Verne again. And then I remembered all of those, you know, myths, myths about people that go down into the bowels of the earth or, you know, into the underworld and they go to hell and they go to, you know, an other world. And then I thought, why am I interested in geology? I started reading geology books too. Um, <laughs> And I did a little... It's a really long roundabout. I know, I know. <laughs> but this is what happens. And then I did started to do a little course online about geology. And I thought, Ramon, you've never been interested in geology before. What's the story? And then I thought, you know what I'm really interested... I am interested in the core. Why am I interested in the core? And then I realised it was about the core of what makes us human. 
Mm. Ah, right. So that was your little electric light bulb moment. Yeah. But you see, that's, I mean, if you think that, um, I mean, some writers, I suppose, have a, a, a fantastic idea of where they're going and they have a system. Mm. And, you know, especially those film writers, Jane, you know, they've got, I would have had like all of these coloured cards around <laughs> behind me and a I would storyboard. have yeah. a storyboard. But I didn't. And, I, and it's sort of not really the way I go about things. But that led me to think about all the things that make us human. And then, you know, starting from the beginning, as I say, I, I like to start a story from the beginning. So I sort of decided to go back to think about what we were like, what our nearest relatives, the apes are like. Mm -hmm. And then I worked my way through to, you know, our previous uh, iterations of Homo, Homo erectus and Neanderthals, and trying to actually understand who we were, because yeah. I thought, you know, as I said in, in, in that little introduction, we've got the world, fate of the world in our hands with this bog standard mammal. There's, there's really, you know, very little difference between us and apes, but look at us. Yeah, it's we're quite thinking, scary, We're zooming, it? we're having this conversation. Mm. This is very different and we have a responsibility to um, think about what we're going to do with this planet. Um, so the beginning of your book, about the first half, is really going back to look at our ancestors, um, starting with the apes, and you've looked at modern-day apes, of course, and you've also talked to scientists about what we know about our prehistoric ancestors. And I, I found it was very interesting reading this because I found that I was sharing your wish that the apes should be more like us than they actually are. I, I kept thinking of the, you know, the film 2001 where the apes have this magical moment where they discover that the tool and they use it to bash the rival tribe of apes, which is perhaps not what we want humans to do, but that's what they end up doing. And I thought, gosh, they really must be a lot like us. But in fact, you, one of the things you found out was they're not as like us as, as we'd like them to be. And they're not nice guys either necessarily, are they apes? No, I mean, um... I, I looked at people who were studying, you know, chimps and bonobos and orangutans and, you know, um, you know, we've seen all those chimps on those, those funny Hollywood movies about, you know, doing cute things. And, but, you know, chimps are really, really dangerous animals. They are incredibly strong. They're about four times as strong as we are because of the way their, their um, arms are, and their muscles are, are organised. And they're very aggressive. And, you know, and people who look after them in zoos, uh, not always, but it's quite common to have a finger taken off or an eye ripped out or, you know, they are really wild animals. And um, we, and one of the people I, I spoke to was Daniel Povanelli, who had been studying, tw for 20 years he studied the differences between apes and humans and mostly children, like, you know, what did apes do? What did children do? Because up until about 10 months of age, there's very little difference very, between a human and, and a, say, a chimp baby. Um, they start, you know, they're very cute and they start to, except, of course, the ape baby doesn't talk ever. And the, the human baby will start to point and try and take your, um, your, your interest and understand that your interest is different from from their interest and try and get your attention. So they kind of understand that it's called a theory of mind. They, they sort of understand that you are your own person and I'm me. And if we want to have a conversation, if we want to share something, I have to get your attention. And it, an ape doesn't do that. Mm. Um, and well, Povanelli had sort of grown up in this whole idea of, you know, these fantastic, 
you know, women, you know, who went off to Miss Who's It Among the Watsits. There was, there was yeah. you know, the, the um, Goodall and, 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 and the all of these ladies. Yeah, yeah there were, were quite a group of them. And it was, it's very romantic, you know, going off into the jungle. And, and he had this idea that there was, the only difference between them and us is that, that we could talk and they can't, but imagine what they could say, you know, Dr. Doolittle, imagine what they could say if they could speak to us. <clears throat> so he set up a whole lot of different tests and um, over many, many years. And, you know, for example, he, he would, um, one of the tests is, that, you know, you, you have a couple of little kids and you have some apes and you show the little kids a, you know, a glass of water on a table or, and then, Maybe it's got no water in it, actually. It's just, and then they go out and then they come back and then you put a really wonky bottled, bottomed one on the table that doesn't quite stand up. Every human child, two and a half, three years old, picked it up and looked on the bottom. Thought, mm. hmm, there must be something to do with the bottom of this that's making it wonky. Yeah. But no ape ever did. <laughs> and even though they were really good at, you know, they, they were quite clever at lots of other things, they would never ask why, in a sense, you know. They would never, none of the other experiments that um, he did too um, showed that they could learn something and then apply it. So he wrote this book called Folk Physics for Apes mm -hmm. and I was really taken by it and interested in it because it proved to me that even though these creatures are, you know, they have fantastic vision better than us, they have other things they do that are better than us, but... Um, they really have a very different view of the world. Mm, mm. And he, for him, he suddenly realised that it was part of our makeup, part of our nature really to impose stories on the world, um, to impose, you know, anthropomorphise, if you want, the world. Um, you know, if we see a couple of eye, eyes in a piece of toast, it's all around the internet because it looks like Jesus and everyone goes, <clears throat> I can see that. And, or, or I've seen some um, pictures of trees like recently that, you know, have human features. Oh, everyone looks like, oh, it just looks like a person. That's what we do. We sort yeah, of that's what we naturally do it, don't we? Personhood on yeah. these objects. Mm -hmm. um, so he kind of stopped doing that work after a while because he realised that there was nothing he could do to stop himself from kind of imposing his view about what the apes were doing. This is a the theme that, that comes out quite a bit in the book because you go on to talk to scientists and you have quite an odyssey travelling around the world and talking to scientists and going to visit um, caves and looking at cave paintings and, and discussing the various kinds of what we might call primitive man who, who, rose, uh, who rose up before um, Homo sapiens. And... Um, you, you expect the scientists to be kind of no-nonsense and, and very um, straightforward, but in fact, they do have theories and they do get quite passionate. They do disagree with each other, don't they? So how, how did you deal with that? Well, this is what all the people that I went to see, I thought I was going to because they'd done some really interesting work or they were based at very interesting places that I wanted to see and I wanted to engage with them. But I discovered that every person that I went to see taught me something about what it was to be human, you know, um, because they were different people and they had different lives and different experiences. And one of the things I discovered is that, you know, humans disagree with each other. Um, 
we have this, you know, way of, you know, we don't, we don't tend so much these days to sort of knock each other out. But intellectually, there's quite a lot of um, uh, competition. Mm. Well, this is fair enough, you know, in the scientific method, you know, competition for ideas and, you know, one person puts their ideas forward and somebody else says, no, I don't agree with that and this is my, this is my evidence and this is my experiments. But it was interesting to see how sometimes I wondered, you know, whether the kind of alpha, alpha male, a beta male and female um, throughout the book uh, whether we were still being um, governed by our our kind of tendencies that come very deep from from our origins, you know. You wonder uh, if it is possible to be really truly objective, don't you? Because because scientists are humans as well, and they're going to have their own little prejudices and beliefs, whether they like it or not. Yes, that's true. Um, but you know, the whole the whole thing about you know, I was I was very sort of taken by all of the scientific work that I was reading about. And, you know, I reminded myself, of course, of myself as a science student. Um, and I was, you know, excited and, and uh, I was fascinated. Yeah, but I wasn't really... Over. You really do get caught up in it. And, and your excitement is infectious. I started to feel excited too. Good. It is exciting. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I wasn't a very good scientist because, you know, I wanted to get on with what the results were and, you know, I don't have the sort of um, the, the oh, what, you know, the, the personality, I suppose, to be taking things um, over and over and doing the experiments and oh, waiting and being patient. Patience is not my virtue. <laughs> and I would like, for example, one of the, the people I spoke to, um, Bernard Wood, Professor Wood, he's a, he's a world famous um, paleo um, paleoanthropologist and his expertise is bones especially of the of the mandible and teeth and he I thought when I talked to him I said you know when when did you fall in love with bones and he sort of looked at me and went what do you mean I'm not in love with bones and I think, how could you how could you spend 40 years with bones sometimes with the same mandible for 10 years looking at it and coming back to it and thinking about what it is and where it fits without being in love with it. But he was very, he was very sort of wary of my enthusiasm. Mm. He was doing the very straight, well, we're scientists here, we don't get enthusiastic, that's not our job. <laughs> um, but uh, that's, that's, what, that's what you're supposed to do, of course. But they did, he did remind me of some of those um, very doer scientists who taught me at university and who must have thought to myself, to themselves, what is this person doing in this course? <laughs> in fact, you know, Jane, I, I did fail one, one year, my biology, my first year biology exam, and I had to go up to something called the Failures Committee, which I didn't know there was one of. Oh, but I no. There was. And I, and I hadn't really gone to any of the lectures, and I'd written this essay on the, um, the um, excretory system of the spider, and all I could remember was that they had very chitinous bottoms like real like they were made of this like plastic material and I'd written this big essay about how you know their bottoms were so chitinous and, and it was all very descriptive but it was the only thing I knew and and he said to me because um, they were looking for a biochemical pathway actually not a big description of their bottoms and he said have you ever considered journalism as a career and I was completely mortified and I thought this is 
outrageous, you know. Of course, I ended up doing exactly what he suggested. Oh, we're, we're, we're very shallow and very curious, we journalists. Yes, we are. <laughs> uh, can I move now to the second part of the book, which is quite a shift in mood as well as a shift in time. And now you're looking not at the past, but at the future of the human race. And um, it is quite extraordinary. I, I found it an, an absolutely amazing ride. Um, and you... you you start by asking, should we be fearful of the future? And then you talk to some people who aren't fearful at all. In fact, they're quite evangelistic. Tell us a bit about the League of Immortals. Well, um, I went to a, a conference in San Diego, which was the RADFest, the Revolution Against Aging and Dying. It was the first festival of, of, of uh, anti, anti-death, I suppose. I mean... You know, I think they're just talking about extending life for as long as they can. So there's a whole lot of people there um, and there are some scientists there and there are people who are doing straight scientific work about cell death, for example. Now, there are organisms that will just live hundreds of years and what's the difference between them and us and why are our cells um, coded for this death? And so there are people there who who said that they could make your telomeres, which are these things at the end of your chromosome, like um, like the end of your shoelaces. They're sort of a hard bit at the end of your shoelaces, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And every time they, the cell divides, a little bit of the telomere gets lost until they go right down to the bottom and then that's the end of that cell. So there are some people who are working on trying to make the telomeres stay long, Excuse me. Um, There are, you know, other people who are working on special vitamins and special um, hormones and trying to work out what makes you live longer. And there are others who who regard death as as really an illness, ageing as an illness. And they're saying, you know, if it was any other illness that killed people, we'd be really getting behind it and just making sure it stopped. But people don't regard ageing as an illness. And so they were sort of really, um, their, their push was sort of for, for changing this policy towards, mm-hmm. towards dying. But, you know, they were very sort of optimistic, I must say. I mean, if, if all the people that I spoke to about the past, they had a tinge of sort of, they were a bit wet, weary and pessimistic about the future. Um, perhaps because they'd seen from digging and what they knew about what history. To past peoples and, the, and their civilizations or whatever, whatever they, they died out, basically, whether, whether we're going to go the same way. But the, these people who were optimistic about the future, um, they, were, they were sort of optimistic. And even if, if you said things like, well, you know, what about, what about the population? Well, they, they'd increasing population, a whole lot of old people staying on. Well, they pointed out that actually the population is looking like it's going to fall um, because this is actually, if you have a look at what's going on in in many of the developing countries, you know, look look at um, Japan, for example, um, that the young people are not as populous as they are in other less developed countries. Mm -hmm. And if you do the projections, it looks like, you know, there isn't going to be this massive population in the planet um, that they were worried about in the 1960s. And then you say, well, what about, um, you know, CO2 and the environment? And they, oh, well, you know, we can do this, we can do that, we can throw up a whole lot of sulphur in the atmosphere and that'll block 
this problem about CO2. And they were very optimistic. And, and you, it, but there weren't like obvious steps. Well, first this, then this, then this. But yeah. they just assumed yeah. that, you know, 500 years ago, if you said people would be able to talk to each other on Zoom and they won't even <laughs> be in the same place and people will be able to fly in aeroplanes, you'd say, that's madness. So it's true. That's what it would have been like 500 years ago. Yeah, we so, should have got our flying cars, though, have we? <laughs> well, you know, uh, yeah, we've got so jetpacks. Yeah, we've got yeah jet well, that's true. We have. So you looked at... Well, things like cryopreservation, transhumanism, radical life extension, uh, the idea of becoming perfect beings in perfect world, or we can all be uploaded into AI. We can leave our bodies behind, you know, this, this, this troublesome wetware, as they, they call bodies. And um, am I right to feel a bit sceptical about all this, do you think? Well, I don't know. You, 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 sh you can. <laughs> but, you know, I'm... Well, sceptical, I'm just sort of open to think, well, what are the steps that people are thinking about mm. and, you know, how might it happen? You know, the people who, who are interested in freezing their bodies just at the point of death, I mean, officially dead, but they've got these systems of getting rid of all the blood circulating, persiflation mm. is the, the technical term, and they put um, another kind of liquid through and, and then they... Um, freeze the bodies or your head if you don't want to freeze your whole <laughs> other body because it turns out that some of them think oh this body I'm not sure if I want this one but maybe <laughs> in a hundred years they'll have other bodies and you could just pop your head on that and it'll be hey presto there you go you you'll get, you go for another hundred I think years. I'd want a new head if I was going to have a new body as well <laughs> Well, you know, um, that, we could do that too. We yeah. could arrange that, Jane. But, you know, you, and you think of things like, well, if your head is preserved and um, in 100 years there is a solution to your problem and they, who's going to unfreeze you and who's going to want to? And, and even if you have your body frozen and then they've fixed up what it was that you died of, what will you do then? Like all your money's been given away because you actually did die. Yeah, um, everybody you knew and loved has died too. They're all dead unless they've got, they're in the next cylinder being preserved. <laughs> um, and who's going to, and, and you're going to be in this, in a hundred years, this world that you're not going to know anything about. Mm. Um, how are you going to live? How are you going to support yourself? And they would say, oh, this is ridiculous, you know, what do you mean having a job? That's not going to happen. We're all going to be, you know, uh, there are going to be computers to do all the things we need. There are going to be um, supports, you know, guaranteed minimum income is going to be, you know, it's not going to be like that. And, hmm. you know, it's going to be fine and, and we're looking forward to it. So, I mean, yeah. you can ask all sorts of questions and you can wait and see what happens. But, you know... Um, Yes, it's just, uh, I think you just have to keep your mind open. I mean, why? Mm -hmm. what's the point of saying, oh, it's never going to happen? It's interesting to inquire about what people are thinking. And oh, this is, this is yeah. the whole thing about meeting people with these ideas. Um, this is just, this is a different group of people mm -hmm. and what they, and this is what they want. And interestingly enough, they didn't have children usually. The ones that had ah, signed yeah. up for for themselves to be preserved didn't have kids so I, I always wondered whether that you know they the focus on themselves was so great because yeah, they didn't yeah. have 
you know, oh, well, there's, that's, this world is for this next generation. I'm only here temporarily. No, we, we, um, I, I, we should have a question. We're, I'll leave a little bit of time for questions, but we do have one question already, which I think is very important. The book is called A Letter to Layla. Who is Layla? Good question. Well, you know, um, while I was, it's been five years working on this book um, because of all the different areas of science and, and uh, trying to work out what the book was about and how I could get it, bring it all together, the future, the past, human beings, what we were like, what we were going to be like. And um, my youngest granddaughter was born five and nearly a half years ago, and she's Layla. And she would come, um, be dropped off to be looked after by me. And I, I'm just looking over there because her bassinet was over there while I was at my desk. And I, I was looking at her and reading and suddenly I realised I had a little laboratory of my own. My, I had a homo sapien, a little girl, and she was very interesting. I thought, oh... I've got an observation deck here and I started to observe her. Well, I was reading about the chimps. I started to observe what she was capable of when she was a tiny little baby and I would feed her a bottle and, she, and I would talk to her and I could see her mouth forming the same shape as my mouth was when I was going like this or smiling. I could see that she was beginning. And then I'd read all this stuff about acquisition of language and this is what what infants do. And I thought, oh, yeah, you're doing that and you're doing this. And so I began to take notes and then she, she learned how to stand up and keep walk and keep on going. And then she started to ask questions. This is the why. This is the why. Yeah. yeah. So um, a letter to Layla um, travels to our deep past and near future is really because Layla forms a kind of backbone and her development forms a backbone of, of the book. And as she develops and asks questions and somehow becomes embroiled in the sorts of conversations that I'm having with all kinds of people all over the world, it's, it's sort of grounded me. And, of course, her generation is the generation that's going to be taking over from us. Mm. And um, I think it's important for them to know where, they come, where they've come from and, and perhaps think about where they're going. Um, you know, I, I talk to science fiction writers too and, and yeah. uh, you know, that's, that's where that our interests to, together, of course, Jane, a writer of science fiction, somebody who's used to thinking about what and what if and and how and and why and what what about the future so i found their minds really interesting about projecting mm -hmm. um and and some of them um have you know really really gifted in trying to create worlds that um are unfamiliar to us because it's the future or it's an on another universe i found it i've just found all of these human thoughts really interesting and intriguing and it and it gave me great respect for the human ability to connect with each other to communicate to achieve things amazing things i mean i kept getting you know pictures of pictures of saturn's rings when when the hubble telescope went past and and then you know one pictures of a black hole in the next galaxy and it's amazing we can see all these things now isn't we it? can and, and you know i had a recording of the wind on mars and you think my god 
look what we can do when we put our minds to it's it. I mean, and isn't it? Yeah. Is, the thing is, you know, we're, we are capable of such uh, viciousness and we are capable of such bestiality as well. And we are capable of such brilliance. And look, if you just look at this pandemic, for example. Yeah. yeah. You know, Which you, you mentioned right at the end of the book, because obviously it was starting to happen as you were writing. Yeah. It, it, I, I, st- I put my last sort of full stop in July. So there was, you know, a, quite a few months of pandemic having happened. And, you know, we were looking around at people thinking, why are they standing so close to me? And where's their mask? And what's going to happen? And are we all doomed? And... Then you, then you realise that what we've got, like artificial intelligence, was used to track the, the virus to work out where people were getting it and where they were going and what the next um, hotspot might be. Um, artificial intelligence was used to analyse the you know, chest um, scans of COVID patients originally to try and work out what this thing was and, and how mm. it, it mm. operated. Um, we, you know, Twitter and, and the, the Chinese equivalent were being analysed very early on about this strange um, uh, pneumonia that people were getting. So our communications and our technologies were being used to communicate with each other and to try and work out what had worked one place and mm. what might work here. Right. Yeah. And we used this, this extraordinary capability to you know, learn from each other as we've done now. I mean, we've, we're now learning that what we've just been doing in lockdown in, in Victoria, where I am, is, is, you know, world class and having a look at, you know, what's going on in Europe now, in, in France and in the UK and in Germany and Italy, back to the second wave. So I just think that we're in a position to really change the way we live on this planet we can use our brilliance to, to communicate with each other and to cooperate with each other and making sure that we have our institutions that we've created, international institutions. Um, these are the things, these are our tools that are going to get us through. Yeah, indeed. Now, I, we've only got a few minutes left, so I'm just going to ask um, Christine if she can put up any questions that we've had from our audience. And so... Okay, let's see. Where will it be, Christine? Um, right there in the chat function, there's another one from lovely Dimitri saying, what does the conflict and disagreement mean for the question about who we are and why have we evolved the way we have? What does the... Con- well, the conflict and disagreement um, is, well, you know, animals are... Conf- it may have conflict over territory. This is what they do uh, over over mates. Um, they threaten each other over being eaten and eating. I mean, this is sort of basic human and animal behaviour. Um, so, if you sort of project this, um, we you know we we fight over territory all the time. We still there's still um, wars and and uh, we fight over resources, um, but. Another angle to that argument is that we contest of ideas and if we have a civilised context contest of ideas, we make progress, we, we um, move forward, we learn and we share our knowledge. So 
um, that's how I see it. I mean, I, I can't see the point of being, you know, completely without our, our you know, basic drives, but mm. if we apply them and use them um, in a constructive way, um, I think they can be really useful. Can I put a last question to you, Ramona? After all your research, you, you've talked about um, how um, our knowledge and our development has helped with dealing with things like, like the pandemic. What about the other great big elephant in the room, climate change? Do you think that we have the wherewithal and resources to deal with that? Well, I think we do, absolutely. Um, you know, look at the hole in the ozone layer. Um, we got together, we made some um, uh, agreements, um, we stopped using CFCs, and the hole in the ozone layer that, is above, that was above the south part of Australia um, is more or less closed now. I mean, mm. this wouldn't have happened if we hadn't got together and made an agreement. I mean, we, we have the capacity to to do something about climate change. We know what the problem is and we know what the solution is and we know what the time frame is. So yes, um, that's, it's not really the elephant in the room. We can, always, we can see the elephant, we're not ignoring <laughs> it. And it's a matter of making sure that people who are, you know, uh, our now juniors who are in charge of things get to know that we really want this to be solved. So you're optimistic that Layla is going to grow up in a, a world where these things will be, will be fixed? Well, I'm optimistic because what's the point of being not optimistic? I mean, you know, we could be pessimistic and we could just dig a hole and, and all, you know, all go down in, in this bunker and eat baked beans for the rest of, until Armageddon happens. But that doesn't get you anywhere, you know? I mean, I'm optimistic that we still have time to get together and do things and that, um, that we owe it to Layla and her, her crew to guide them at least um, and not stand in the way of, of doing that, you know, not, not stand in the way selfishly of doing things that will make their world um, look, they'll have to fight their own battles, of course, and they'll have to work out for themselves. Who knows what's going to happen in 50 years? I won't be here. But, you know... <laughs> well, I haven't signed up to be frozen. I just, yeah, I think I will have had enough in a while and I'll let, I'll let Layla and her, and her generation in on, you know, working it out. But, you know, as I, as I said, what do we know of the world in the future. I mean, the world changes so rapidly. But what I could tell Layla was what I knew about human beings, what I knew about what drives them, what I knew about what touches them, what I knew about what makes them unhappy and what, what makes them courageous. And these things I don't think will change, even though who knows what, what the world will be like in 50 years. Well, we, we are pretty amazing animals. I've discovered that from reading your book. Quite extraordinary animals, more extraordinary than, I, than I'd ever dreamed. So I, I, I feel I've learned that from, from your, your book, Ramona. And thank you so much for taking on this wonderful journey. And I do recommend this book to everyone. It's, it's a terrific read. It's very accessible. It's, uh, Ramona makes the science absolutely understandable and clear and she brings out the humanity in, in everyone she talks to as well which is what we want so thank you Ramona. Thank you very much Jane it's been a pleasure thanks to everyone who's on the zoom tonight 
Um, yes, it's really great to talk to you from my little room here. It's been a real pleasure. Jane and Ramona, thank you so much. Do you know what I realised tonight, friends? I realised that it had been so long since I've heard optimistic words. It was such Ooh. a relief. Almost started listening to you, Ramona and Jane. Thank you so much for your wisdom, for your optimism, for your courage. I so appreciate it. You make me feel like that this is the right place to be. To you, Jane, thank you for asking those questions all those type of questions that we, the audience, wanted to know. You've done it again. I think you're absolutely brilliant, Jane Sullivan. And you, Ramona Caval, honestly, thank you so much to all of you for coming tonight, to Text Publishing for making this possible, to all of you, go well, keep reading, stay safe, keep talking. Good night, everybody. Thank you. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you can sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Thank you.